0: I'm going to frame this whole talk in a way, Uh, it's the journey of my life and I'm I'm not doing that because I'm egocentric, I'm doing that because I think I'm a slow learner and uh, the things I've learned have taken me decades and when I look back over I can identify some of the larger movements, I just thought it would be worthwhile doing a personal story. I mean there's two ways of understanding any large topic, one way is to look, look at the topic, the ontology of the topic and its structure from a propositional point of view. An entirely alternative way that I'm increasingly attracted to is the history. How did you get to think that way? And that's what I'm going to talk about. My life has been a life lived in the public sphere, by which I mean organisational life. I'm a, I lead a strategy consulting firm and that has plunged me into interactions with some of the major corporate change in Australia, both in the public sector and in the private sector and in the not-for-profit sector. Uh, And our firm has had the privilege of a lot of interactions over a long time uh, in that space. I never expected to go there. Uh, My background is literature. I've never studied management for a day in my life. I had contempt for it initially. So on a lot of grounds, I didn't ever expect to become a strategy consultant or an organisational change consultant. And I didn't expect to from the point of view of my faith, which was extremely zealous. So the title is Universal Salvation. And, and what would it's if you believed in universal salvation, what are its implications for the, the voice of faith in the public sphere? The public sphere, which I think is a really important topic today, and we've addressed that in gospel conversations in other areas. I actually want to reverse the, the question, because that's really not The question, the generative question is the opposite, which is how did my participation in the public space influence uh, predispose me to eventually a view of universal salvation? Because that's what happened. And so tracing that journey is really more accurate. Straight away, I will say, unlike Robin, I'm unhappy with the term universal salvation. I'm unhappy with it. I've always been uncomfortable with it because really... That adjective universal really means something like every individual, every little person, what's their fate, what's their fate, what's their fate. The word salvation is really can be left to mean what it means in the traditional evangelical world that I grew up in. I summarise it as the four spiritual laws gospel, which in summary is that the problem is sin. The scope of God's interest is individual souls. Christ's death was to pay the penalty for those sins. Uh, We're offered salvation by accepting Christ and heaven is the destination. That's my summary of that. Cosmic redemption is quite different and it's different in a paradigm shifting way because the object of salvation becomes the cosmos rather than just individual souls. It doesn't obviate individual souls, but the object of redemption becomes the cosmos. We take the scope of redemption to include the cosmos, which was a word I, as a young evangelical Christian, didn't use. The the word I saw in the Bible was the world, quote unquote, and that always had a pejorative tone to it. You know, you're meant to escape the world. Cosmos, that's what the Greek says, is a better world. It's a very big world word, as Bentley Hart says. It includes the material order of things, physics. Importantly, it also includes the social order, And it includes metaphysics, the metaphysics that shimmers across the top of the cosmos. And once you do that, you broaden the scope to the cosmos, you then find another major question immediately comes up, which is what's the relationship between humanity and the cosmos? Because the minute you start talking about the cosmos, you take a different perception of humanity than individuals. You look at humanity as a collective in their relation, to the cosmos? These are very fundamental questions. So we're left contemplating not just the cosmos, but humanity watching the cosmos, shaping the cosmos, as well as being part of the cosmos we're watching. So in short, we are also looking at the microcosmos of humanity. We are all universes. Every long-term memory in this room contains more information, vastly more information than the internet, vastly more. When people have tried to quantify the capacity of just one person's long-term memory, they say it's possibly greater than the the number of particles in the universe. We are almost literally a microcosmos. I mean, I know I'm complicated. Aren't you complicated? (laughs) Once you do that and change your perspective that way, the nature of the transformation on offer starts to change. It can't just be the forgiveness of sins, which focuses attention on the cross and narrows the cross to a legal exercise on God's part. I mean, it's hard to think of, for instance, forgiving the sins of a tree, or forgiving the sins of the wind, or forgiving the sins of the law of gravity, or forgiving the sins of an asteroid. Penal substitution has a few limitations, but one of them is it's hard to apply it to the cosmos. What redeeming the cosmos does is it stretches the model of atonement beyond the cross to the resurrection. And we have to include the resurrection in our operating model of the salvation work, the saving work of the Godhead. I mean, we can conceive of trees sharing in resurrection life, we can conceive of the wind being animated by resurrection life. We can conceive of the laws that preserve and make life possible on the earth as being reconfigured by the resurrection so that they can house glory. And we can imagine a lifeless asteroid being infused with resurrection life. Perhaps I'm the only one who can, but I certainly can. In short, we can conceive of every nook and cranny of this cosmos being overhauled by resurrection life. And becoming subject to this resurrection order which magnificently dominates the epistle to the hebrews as the order of melchizedek which by the way if you read Mel- read hebrews he spends the first half saying i want to actually get you out of the levitical order to the melchizedek order but it's very hard to understand which is the the order of the endless life it turns out once we do all of this we end up not very far from the vision that animated the apostles after they'd had enough time to absorb the fact of the resurrection and to reflect on its implications, we have in fact only arrived right back at the vision of the end of all things espoused, as we saw last night, most succinctly in 1 Corinthians 15. This end begins with Christ's resurrection, the single act, the single man, and then it spreads to the multitudinous salvation of all those who are uh, are Christ in this age. And finally, it culminates in the full completion of the universal renewal, the cosmic renewal, and God will be all in all. So we're left with a bigger picture of that word, redemption, than we might have had. I think it's pretty obvious once you change the landscape like this, uh, it gets hard to fit hell into it. If the entirety of the cosmos is renewed by the stunning invasion of the life of God, and God is thus all and in all, Just where does hell fit into this topography? It's actually inconceivable. And that was my problem. I tend to be probably more semi-philosophical or dialectical than I am psychological and emotional, but there's a conceptual fit problem. This magnificent new life-enforced landscape is just too complete to accommodate like a bad suburb or some kind of carve-out that can accommodate the non-life of hell. I mean, I used to think eternal hell is an oxymoron because eternity is the life of God and anyway. We'd have to retranslate 1 Corinthians 15 something like God will be all in some places and most places except a small enclave called hell. And actually it can't be that small because most people end up there. So do we have two cosmoses, like one renewed one or one cursed one? So you can see how once you have this broader landscape that this idea of hell doesn't fit. So I want to uh, trace my journey towards that kind of understanding and I'm going to trace it on two axes. One is a bigger picture of the cosmos and the other is a bigger picture of redemption. As I say, you could call this the confessions of a slow learner or the journey to the burning bush. My life was framed by radical grace and a saintly woman. None of us are islands and I can't tell my story independent of this magnificent, saintly lady who formed me, my mother. She became a Christian through a miraculous healing of my sister when Sharon was 18 months old. And that led Mum to a search for God which culminated in her conversion two years later and soon after that she led me to Christ when I was five. She had a lot of trouble believing that a five-year-old could, in a 30-minute conversation, do what she'd struggled to do for years in her life. But it appeared that God didn't have that problem and something really had happened to me. As my dear wife would say, grace framed my mother's image of God. For her, Christ was her lover, her bridegroom, her husband, her friend, and her brother. She felt enormously inadequate in life. She's actually a very capable woman. But she radiated the governance of grace into all her personal life and relationships, and she did so with great effort, with great effort to overcome natural prejudices. Now, a short story will illustrate how this worked. When we lived in Fiji, so at this time I, was, I lived in Fiji between the ages of five and eight or five and nine, She came to suspect that her young servant girl was stealing from her. She was missing jewellery and money. She didn't react immediately. As always, she cast her cares on the Lord and she prayed for wisdom. The Lord then convicted her that this girl was poor and struggling. So mother decided not to raise the matter of the thefts with her and instead raised her salary. And this changed the girl forever forever and she became devoted to mother. That's the behaviour that I lived with all my young life. And my mother and I talked about the Lord throughout all these years, and Grace defined those conversations and, her model of, and the model of God that I was getting. Mum did feel rather inarticulate and incapable of expressing the sheer magnificence of the God she loved, so she prayed for me every day of my life that I could put into words and express the architecture of grace that she saw. And my strongest sort of skill academically was was literature and communication. And we had great Bible teachers in Fiji. I quickly became very literate in the scripture, rather precociously. When we arrived back in Australia, we went to an Anglican church and the Sunday school people didn't know what to do with me because I could summarize at the age of 10 Romans, or at least the evangelical view of Romans. And this love for scripture intensified. I had an experience when I was 12 that I would, in retrospect, call a mini baptism of the Spirit. I was visiting my grandparents' house in Melbourne. I sat down to read my scripture union notes. I used to try and do it quickly so I could watch TV afterwards. I can still remember that. It was 1 Peter 5:7. I read, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. And suddenly, I was transfixed, and Christ was in the room talking to me. And I read for an hour, and I couldn't stop the scriptures. And that opened the scriptures to me in a really living, powerful way. Grace seems to, for Paul, be the origin of faith and an origin that has to develop. He says, grace given to you that in everything you were enriched in him, in all discourse and in all knowledge. You know, there's, This grace is a gift, but it has to be investigated and discussed and explored, which was my experience. However, it didn't... I wouldn't say it didn't last, but it ran dry. I think the evangelical gospel's rather simplistic, and uh, I became familiar with it rather quickly, and it got boring. So by the age of my late teens, I was entranced by great literature and and the big ideas behind great literature. My heroes back then were Joseph Conrad and T.S. Eliot. I liked the difficult guys, because they seemed to have more depth psychologically than the thin conception of man as a sinner that I felt the Bible and my evangelical faith was giving me. I was bored by it. And worse still, it was forcing on me a kind of a dualism. I was living in a split world. I had the Bible on one hand as a religious text, and it was hermetically sealed and closed. And then on the other hand, I had big ideas from literature and philosophy, and they just seemed to be different worlds that didn't talk to each other. I think this was worsened by the doctrine of inspiration I had that made the Bible infallible and complete. And what this did was the Bible became ostracised, like a specialist text, confined to the religious layer of life. Now, all this is under the surface. I mean, no one's trying to do this, but I think this was what was happening to me. So, for instance, just to be practical, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, in my mind as a 17-year-old, didn't quite match. Let us go then, you and I when the night is spread against the sky like a patient etherized upon the table. T.S. Eliot's marvelous opening, I think, to the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. The second problem that this dualism left me with was the dichotomy between the supernatural and the natural. Supernatural is the world of God's activity and the natural is everything else. So this allocated God to the supernatural while the day-to-day is allocated to the natural. And I actually felt this was having an unhealthy, manic effect on me spiritually. I don't know if any of you can identify with this, but it seemed to encourage me to ramp up a pious experience of emotionally charged devotion fed by songs of praise on a Sunday. Uh, That's the high point. And then it plunged me into the daily grind of normality, whose mundanity was actually accentuated by the high point of Sunday. Does that... anyone ever identify with that and I got to hate the the oscillation I thought I'd just rather be average in the middle so I intuitively felt this was false but I didn't have the middle ground to go to so I prayed a prayer back then that I think the Holy Spirit impressed on me I prayed simply for reality quote unquote reality this wasn't a naive prayer, because I think I knew what I wanted. I wanted to find a God who was connected to the creation and the context. I actually wanted to kill the word supernatural. I wanted to kill the the dichotomy between the supernatural and the natural. I didn't want a God pumped up with emotions and songs every Sunday, the kind of pietism that led Ludwig Feuerbach to reject religious experience as escapist. T.S. Eliot was right when he said, mankind cannot bear very much reality. I wanted the integration of transcendence and context, of the clouds with the mud, of God with humanity. I wanted a seamless life, which was another prayer I prayed, which didn't distinguish between the supernatural or the natural. Does that make sense to people, that sort of journey? Very ironically, the next step drove me further into dualism. I think God knew what he was doing. I was getting an antidote for legalism. The late teenage years are precarious times for the serious-minded youth. It's a vulnerability that I was reminded of recently by reading the wondrous autobiography of Reza Maritain. Anyone heard of her? Uh, She was the wife of the great Catholic philosopher Jacques Maritain. It's a beautiful book Anne's reading at the moment. It's called When We Became Friends, it's an autobiography. As a young 17-year-old Jewess with a deep soul and a profound mind, she went to the Sorbonne in 1900, seeking truth with a dark passion. And this is what she wrote. Only 17 and already the deepest needs of the mind and soul are raising their voices. Adolescence is here with its own special power of totally needing and asking. Truly, adolescence confronts the universe challenging it to appear in court, to render its account, to explain and justify itself, for already youth indicts life. Confronted by the hard-edged materialism of the Sorbonne in 1900, she was in despair until she met the young man whom she called the greatest of my friends. One day outside a class in plant physiology, Jacques Martin, Together, they began to search out truth in the desert land of French scientism. And by the way, that was the term that he coined. It's now become common as the sort of idolatry of science, but Jacques Maritain coined it. My passion did not match theirs. They made a pact to commit suicide together if they didn't find the meaning of life by the end of the year. (laughs) In God's providence, they found Christ and together became seminal influences for faith and against materialism across Europe and the globe. And Jacques became one of the foremost philosophers of Europe. So I didn't have anything as dramatic as that happening. But I did plunge into a hardcore fundamentalist church. I don't know if any of you have had this experience. but uh, One approach to being stuck in the middle of a dualist dilemma is to drive hard down one of the alternative paths to the exclusion of the other. And that's what I did. Biblical truth became literal interpretation. Life became merely a pathway to heaven, sin was codified and rebuked, a spurious kind of spirituality that denied any feelings except rejoicing in the Lord dominated our language, and part of this fundamentalism was a ferocious belief in judgment and hell. In this mindset, we took evangelism terribly seriously, and we took seriously the imprecation from Ezekiel that you quoted from Amy Carmichael, that the blood of sinners would be on our hands if we didn't witness to them, so we carried out we carried on our person, this is going to university, tracks on the second death and handed them out everywhere we went. I think all I was doing was actually taking the the doctrine of evangelical, traditional evangelical fundamentalism seriously and I was doing what other people didn't and taking it seriously and taking it to its end. And it nearly killed me as a sensitive soul. It was utterly fruitless. And the further we drove down that path of the polarity between God and this world, the deeper we drove an internal rupture of the soul. And at the end, we coined the phrase, outwardly rejoicing, inwardly screaming. Can some people here identify with that? <laughs> the next phase of my life was a retreat. Uh, while I a retreat from that fundamentalism, we left that church and retreated into the refuge of normalcy. I might have not have matched Racer Maritain's zeal, but I did, like her find my greatest friend in those couple of years. And like Raisa and Jacques, our conversations began to form the backbone of my life and indeed of my theology. Anne was a recent convert with a Catholic background. She lacked my Bible knowledge, but she shared my passion for literature and philosophy and underneath that a soul for whom loving and knowing God was life's aim. She also had what it turned out I needed, which is the voice of grounded skepticism or perhaps better expressed as scepticism grounded in reality, including the reality of inward experience. She spoke from her soul and told the truth, including when it was inconvenient. I didn't like that. Her summation of my frantic preaching in those days was it was just, quote, she was quoting Hamlet, words, words, words. <laughs> we had the dualism, but we we began to do something positive with it. We as- To the fundamentalist nightmare. We got married, we retreated into ourselves and into normalcy. We married young, we had kids young, 20s, early 20s. And now I found myself plunged into the other side of dualism, which is the normalcy of babies waking at 4am and the normalcy that that imposes on you. It doesn't feel supernatural. (laughs) But now I began to find God in the mundane. I think C.S. Lewis did something similar, I gather, babysitting. We had to navigate the stress of parenthood and we found ourselves at our wit's end. Among other things, to our surprise, we turned to some friends who didn't call themselves Christians and looked to them for help. This was uh, humbling for us because we had thought that we as Christians had to have all the answers. We clearly didn't. And so, but we found a common bond in our humanity and these people became friends for life and many of them Christians. For my part, I was struggling as a young father and even more a young husband. What I found that my evangelicalism did for me in times of stress and tension is I found pharisaism not grace ruled in my heart. So I was a very good critic of my dear wife but sometimes not a very good husband. I then began to reflect upon myself and in those moments I began to look to the cross of Christ and I found that the paradigm of unconditional love was the only pathway forward in times of stress and anxiety, absolutely mundane times. I found that was a hard pathway and a long, long way from the legalism that the evangelical gospel had trained me in, but not fortunately the gospel that my mother had trained me in. So my deepest theology became radical grace and unconditional love. And it was forged in the mundane context of nappies and crying babies and marital stress. Above all, what I learned is that good living is not helped by judgment and legalism, but it is helped by unconditional love. And I came to believe that the counterintuitive logic of the Sermon on the Mount was not just inspiring hyperbole, but the pragmatic principle by which God would govern the universe one day. Put simply, unconditional love wins in the end and is the operating model of the universe. What I'm going to do now for the last 15 minutes is tell the story from then on as I began to engage with life more broadly out of family life. And to explain that, I just want to say that dualism can be productive if you manage it as a paradox. That's actually the way things work. So yes, I had a kind of a dualism. I had a paradox in my life between the sacred and the secular. But if they interact with each other, you can come to a third point that integrates the two. We call this model the flying wedge in Second Road, and it's really the dynamics of creative thinking. Part of the model is that if you stretch both poles, i.e. you go deeper into the cosmos, and there you go deeper into theology, you actually go further and you become more creative in your outcomes. Does that make sense? Ironically, you've got to go deeper into the first principles of things. And that's what I did, and that led me to what I like to say is the journey of the burning bush, seeing glory everywhere. So what I will do in the closing part of this talk is I want to give you a potted history of my journey through the cosmos. The first thing that happened in my teaching was I became appalled by the segmented nature of the curriculum in secondary schools. And I looked for some kind of universal curriculum across the top, which I called teaching kids to think. Because I thought if we could teach the kids to think, I'm talking about 16, 17 year olds, they could apply that in any particular area of the school. So I developed a cross-curricular thinking skills program at the school I taught at, which the headmaster took and gave me the authority eventually to teach across all the subjects. As far as we know, the only attempt at really a genuine cross-curricular curriculum in secondary schools in New South Wales and probably Australia at the time and the integration I was interested in, which was a passion for me, was how people think. And I taught people how to diagram in order to really make them... And, and, and when, you, when you try to teach people to think, you know you're invading a mystery of the microcosmos. So that laid a foundation for me. Uh, my father was a businessman and he said, he said, business needs what you've got. His words were, he's a very senior businessman. They can't think and they can't communicate. This led me into my very first steps into corporate life. As I mentioned last time, Lorraine, you were one of my first clients. I can still remember that two-day workshop that we held at Telecronics. Life-changing for me. If that hadn't worked, I might have gone back to teaching. On the theological side with dualism, I just... I and plenty of other people felt, what on earth are you doing this for? If you're a Christian and you've got a profession, there are some that are okay, like... Medical is sort of okay, I mean missionary's best, but medical sort of okay, teaching sort of okay, but the dark side of commerce, and actually that's you're selling out. People would implore me, somebody with your gifts, you should be going, you should be a professor at a theological seminary, you know, and I felt torn internally. I was in church one day, and my Bible fell open, I was bored by the sermon, I wonder why, and my the Bible fell open at the story of Joseph in Egypt, which I read, and the most obvious thing about that story struck me, which is God called Joseph to govern Egypt, not Israel. And I just knew in an instant I was just a long, long way from where my God was. My theology had a lot of catching up to do. I also felt it was a promise that God would give me that kind of advice to kings and leaders, which has happened since. Something else happened at that time was I employed my first friend, actually he begged me to have a job, my dear friend Mark Strom and a couple of others joined me and we had no idea what we were doing of course because we had no training in management, we were just trying to bring thinking skills to business. But we would reflect and and what Mark and David who was here last week, they'd been to Westminster Theological Seminary and they had very much bigger pictures of theology than I had. So those big pictures of theology were a far bigger view of the Bible, the Bible as a nar- as narrative, a very big view of the Trinity. They had been influenced by a guy called Vern Poitras, who in turn had been influenced by John Frame, who had been influenced by Kevin Pike, who founded the Summer Institute for Linguistics, which became Wycliffe Bible Translators, and he had a, mo- a trinitarian model of all morality and philosophy called the normative situational existential model, and we were just spend hours talking about this after we'd just designed a maintenance training manual for, for ESSO. And we began to see God in all things. And we turned that into a model of change. It just became obvious to us, I think. I don't know how it happened, who did it, of the three big voices of change, intent, design, and experience. And you can go around corporate life. I just wrote a letter to one of the CEO of a large corporation with this model in it, He wrote back he was kind of very challenged by it they don't know it's the trinitarian model that's the trinity intent design experience father logos spirit and we were seeing these shimmers of god not in the wind but in organizational life and it was giving us wisdom and the idea of integration i began that in the training the idea of integration and coherence became enormous that centered in christ one of the verses that from a young age ran through my mind is in Christ all things hang together or cohere in Colossians, And the principle of coherence became enormously important to us. As an example, in those years I was consulting to the Australian Tax Office, the Office of Parliamentary Council and Treasury. They're the three big economic units. They run the economy of Australia. I was the only person getting the leaders to talk to each other. The reality of the way it works is although they work as one system, they work as three silos. So what I'd found back in the school of silos was corrupting business. It was ruining decision-making. What would make decision-making good? Coherence. Christ is the source of all coherence. So we were finding these reflections of the depths of the gospel right there in the cosmos as principles for wisdom. Then the next big step of my career after five to ten years was Finding the world of design. I went to Carnegie Mellon, I met Richard Buchanan. Richard is the world's leading thinker on design and and was himself trained from Chicago University. He did a PhD in philosophy there. Richard and I just bonded. He said, well, you're taking design where it's never been taken before. This thing called design, I actually probably introduced it to Australia, or definitely did, this was way, way before design thinking was being talked about, this is 1990. It was about 10 years before IDEO and others were writing about it. Now, this is all interesting because Richard doesn't claim he's a Christian. He invited me to be the Nuremberg Chair of Design at 1995 at Carnegie Mellon, which was a great privilege. I had to give a public lecture. I'm you know, still getting the split world out of my mind. Richard only had one thing to say to me before I spoke. He said, Tony, I only have one thing to ask you. Please bring your faith into this lecture. It makes no sense without it. He said, I have no time for coyness in these matters. If only the church had that wisdom. So what this led me to, and this was a huge paradigm shift that has obviously framed lots of gospel conversations, was back to the book of Genesis. De facto, I saw that the evangelical tradition began in Genesis 3. The Bible doesn't. It begins in Genesis 1. If you look at the use of Genesis 3 in the rest of the Bible, it's almost not referred to again. You try and find the serpent anywhere in the Old Testament, it's hardly mentioned. New Testament, nothing comes to mind, perhaps one or two. You try and find Genesis 1 in the rest of the Old Testaments everywhere. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the whole creation motif. I was looking at Genesis 1 and reading it, I just read it over and over again. When I was a young Christian, I only went there to kind of fight over evolution, but now I was finding the very seeds of creativity in it. And I I gave a talk at a large industrial designers conference in Vancouver, there were 3000 people there and I was one of the keynote speakers. And I talked about creativity and I talked about innovation. What I said is that creation and design is probably the defining element of humanity. It's a more advanced version than the rationality that the patristic fathers worked with. Because the the theory of the imagination, the theory of creativity, that only came out in the 19th century onwards. Really, you know, when you look at reason and so on, it's fantastic in the image of God stuff. But we now know a lot more. It's a lot more important to us, imagination and invention than it was to them. And I was in the middle of it because of my job. And I finished by saying I wanted to quote them what I still think, thought then I said, I still think now, is the most profound description of the moment of creation that I know available in all literature and I quoted Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was without form and it was empty and void and darkness lay upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters and out of it came the structure and productivity of the the rest of the chapter. And I said we're following in those footsteps. This drive in humanity to shape and order to create light. It's not actually problem-solving, it's self-expression, and people were mesmerised. So I was now experiencing, as I do, the seamless life. I don't, you know, I would use my language somewhat appropriately where I'm speaking, but to me, I just couldn't separate now the upper or- and the lower order. This culminated with my needing to find a theory. I went to the Greeks through Richard Buchanan. Um, I went to the Greeks in a way that the patristics never went and almost nobody goes to this day. I didn't go to Aristotle and Plato for their views of physics. I went to rhetoric, which is an extremely important part of Aristotle's system, but it's not much known. And I found in that, I begin to find in rhetoric, the art of thought that I was championing, because the battleground I was fighting was, was the battleground between scientism and human systems. And so the picture of Christ as the incarnation, as the word housing mystery, became very, very important to me. That was my journey that led me to find this bigger God in the cosmos, humanity at the centre of the cosmos, and my theology talking to it. That's a great picture. I won't say a lot about that now. There's a great fight between Plato and Aristotle, and I was on the Aristotle side. Uh, this is the famous picture of, uh, by Raphael of Plato's Academy with Aristotle and uh, Plato in the middle of it. I won't say more, but all you need to know is that Plato's finger is pointing up and Aristotle's is like this. Aristotle was the connection guy. Plato was the idealist guy. So um, I'd found the enormous union between these worlds I was in, and they were all part of the same thing. Does that make sense for people? I'll finish with... A needle-in-the-haystack moment I had when I was investigating rhetoric, I was so thrilled I would read books on rhetoric and it was like reading the Bible, I thought it was wonderful. I'd read books on creativity and I'd feel that I was standing in sacred ground. But I still at the back of my mind had a bit of a, how does this thing fit together? How does, I mean I could say a lot more about it now but I couldn't then, how does this thing of rhetoric fit together with, you know, I had this deep theology that we'd talked about Trinitarian thinking and rhetoric. Now. The man who first introduced me to Carnegie Mellon was the the guy whose name's at the top of that book. That's one of the great books on rhetoric called Rhetoric, Discovery and Change. And I saw—I read this book for a few years, I thought it was fantastic. One day I looked at the authors and Richard Young was the, the guy who took me to Carnegie Mellon. You see the other name down the bottom? That's Kenneth Pike, the guy who originated that Trinitarian theology. I found out Kenneth Pike was really friends with the guys at Carnegie Mellon and influenced them hugely on their views of language. So that was a nice integration and I would sum that up by saying uh, I had that experience of Bethel. Surely God was in this place and I didn't know it in the cosmos. So last slide. What about redemption? Well, yep, I won't go into that big word but I love the word recapitulation which was the translation of Ephesians one ten that Irenaeus went to where everything is unified and wrapped up and concluded and summarised in Christ. So perhaps. It's cosmic recapitulation rather than just cosmic redemption. Thank you.